All right, we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. So that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to close the series. I've just, it's time. Okay, y'all ready? It's time. This is going to feel like an abrupt ending, but we have gone through so much. Uh, I just, I think it's, I think it's time we put a bow on it. So uh, we're going to close it down this week. And it's going to be somewhat a re- of a review of everything that we've talked about. So everything that we've talked about is kind of in these uh, these chapters that we're going to be looking at, uh, Romans 6 through 8. And uh, these, are, these are chapters that get a lot of attention. Uh, you will probably hear Romans 6 through 8. In, if you've been in church long, uh, you're going to hear Romans 6 through 8 referenced at some point. But I'll tell you this, there's a wide, as popular as these passages are, there's a wide variety uh, in which they're referenced. So there's a, there's a wide variety in which they're taught and how they're understood. Romans in and of itself is a somewhat complicated uh, letter. Uh, and so, and, and it's because of the audience. You know, you have to really be aware of who Paul is speaking to in order to really understand what he's saying in, in the book of Romans. And this particularly, I think, happens in Romans 6 through 8. So, uh, unfortunately, so this is not going to be an in-depth study of Romans 6 through 8. Rather, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to zoom out a little bit and see the big picture of what he's talking about because I think that will help us. Because uh, a lot of times we go to Romans 6 through 8, we pick out a couple of things from those passages and we we say right things, but it's just in wrong context. And so we're going to try to look at the broader context of Romans 6 through 8 and see if we can figure out what Paul is talking about. But last week we finished up um, our discussion on uh, Jesus' instruction to do what? You remember? Last week. Last two weeks. Oh man, friends. Yeah, take up your cross. Okay. Whew. Okay, what did he say? Take up your cross. What, but what was first? Deny yourself. There, okay. Okay, now you're here. Welcome. All right. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, right? So we, uh, we, we discussed what that was. We've been talking about the cross. We've been talking about uh, the reality of what he would have been uh, saying there. Um, and if you, so we've been, this is our eighth week of this series. Uh, so if you want to go back, you can, you can do that on our podcast. John James here makes that real easy on the big worldwide internet. And uh, you can do, isn't that what it's called? Oh, World, World Wide Web. That's the WWW. Okay. I got it. Okay. The big internet machine. If you'll get on there, uh, it'll, it'll tell you all the things we've said the past weeks. So uh, that was the last two weeks. We're going to transition now, wrap it all up. All right. So you're in Romans 6. Everybody's there but me. Okay. All right. So let me just let me just talk a little bit about setting the stage here uh, and, and try and eliminate any confusion before we start. So a lot of times Romans 6 through 8, people will reference this as like maybe the broad way of understanding it is, uh, this is this is a story of the Christian life. Okay, within that context, there's some argument. Is Paul talking about when he when he became a Christian? Is he talking about before he was a Christian? After after he was a Christian? There's snippets in there uh, of of him referencing uh, his life uh, as, as a Jew, uh, as a Pharisee in, in particular. Paul has a lot of emphasis on his background as a Pharisee, so his relationship with the law and his heritage. Uh, as being a Jew, and he'll and he kind of comes in and out of individual discussion, and then this whole theme. So it is a little bit tricky. But what I want to uh, talk to you about this morning is really the the big overview picture. Now, does anybody know during uh, when Jesus was crucified? Does anybody know the context, the holiday 
uh, context uh, of the uh, of the crucifixion. What was going on in that moment? The Passover. Now, what is the Passover? Why? What if we say the Passover is going on? What does that mean that people were doing if Passover was occurring? Anybody? What's it? A, what's it a reference to? Exodus, right? So, what God did is after. Uh, God rescued the children of uh, Israel from Egypt. God, in Leviticus uh, 13, uh, there are festivals, uh, holidays that are instituted. And there's several, but one of those is the Passover. And in the Passover, it's to the point of the Passover is to, on a yearly basis, remember God's miraculous rescue of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And, and God makes a huge point to say, do not forget this. Over and over and over, you've got to tell generation after generation after generation of my, of my freedom that I brought to you uh, from slavery in Egypt, of the freedom that I brought. You've got to remember this over and over and over. Now, last week, we ta- or two weeks ago, we talked about how there is absolutely no accident that Jesus died when he died, right? And we talked about that culturally, that he died on a cross, a Roman cross, and that that wasn't an accident, right? That God intended. He could have died in any cultural setting, but God intentionally placed Jesus at that moment. He died on that cross, right? You also have to know that that timing is intentional during the year, that it matters that Jesus was crucified on Passover. These things are connected. The, the celebration of the Exodus and what God did in the Exodus, the sacrifice. What did, they have to, what did they have to sacrifice and place the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, which saved them, and then they were rescued from Egypt. They were baptized into the Red Sea, right? And slavery was crushed behind them, and they were walking into freedom, right? It's a picture of our salvation. Now, what Paul's going to do, so we understand that. What Paul's going to do is he's going to pick up that theme, and if we're not looking for it, we're going to miss it. But what Paul's doing, he's not telling in Romans 6 through 8, he's not telling about the experience of the Christian life. He's telling about the new exodus. And if we just go into fragments of Romans 6 through 8, we're going to miss that. But I want us to think about it for just a second. Let's think about the themes of the exodus. The first theme of the exodus is the overthrowing of the powers of evil, right? What did it say in, uh, as God is speaking to Moses, what does God say that he hears from his people? Yeah, he hears their cries. They were, in, uh, they had, they were totally entrenched in slavery. And God says, I have heard the cries of my people. And when, we, when he, the scriptures reference uh, the Egyptians and the, the context that that slavery existed in, uh, there, there's no such thing as pretty slavery. It was oppressive, it was dehumanizing, it was shameful, and, and the Israelites were experiencing uh, the toxicity of slavery, and their cries because of it had come to the heavens. And God said, I have heard my people, and I'm moving to action. Okay, So one of the big themes of the Exodus is the overthrow of the powers of evil. The second huge theme is the rescue of God's people as they pass through the Red Sea, right? This is a massive part of the story that the children of Israel, Pharaoh finally relents, tells them to go and the children of Israel go through, go to the Red Sea and it's an impasse, right? They can't get through. God parts the Red Sea and they move through and what happens as the Egyptians pursue them, uh, pursue behind them? The waters collapse and the Egyptians are 
crushed, right? So a huge part, a huge theme is the rescue of God's people as they pass through the Red Sea. What happens next? What does God give next? He quickly establishes them as a people. He calls Moses up to the mountain and he gives the law. This is huge. The Ten Commandments come. This is the, this is the beginning as God lays out the law. Now, this is a huge part of, uh, of, of what it is to be a Jew. It is to observe the law, to hold the law. The law comes from God and is holy. And this, is, this began after the rescue of the children of Israel from Egypt. So the law plays a central role in this exodus. And then what else happens? The other huge thing that occurs uh, that's a major theme is where does God put himself? After they're rescued, there's the giving of the law. Where does he put himself? Yeah, the tabernacle, which is where? Yeah, right amongst the people, right? God's presence is not this far off thing. God's presence comes and is amongst his people. Okay, so you got that? So you got the themes? It's an overthrow of the power uh, of evil. It's a rescue as they cross through the Red Sea. It's the giving of the law, and it's God establishing his presence amongst his people. This is what happens in the Exodus. Now, what's Paul doing, again, in Romans 6 through 8, is he's telling about the new Exodus. So this is what, this is what God is doing. This is what he did then. This is how he set the stage. This is how it connects to what has happened in Christ Jesus. So he's retelling the story of the Exodus in its new context. Let's go to Romans 6. All right, we're going to read a bunch, so hang in there. We're going to read 1 through 11 here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be, what's that word? Enslaved to sin. Notice these things. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so... What do we, if we were to say that, if we were to uh, replace the word sin here with uh, Egypt, if we were to replace sin with Egypt and we were to read that story, we would go, okay, what he's talking about is he's talking about a work that Jesus did in death to overthrow this power of the Egyptians, right? That's in the context of the Exodus. In the new Exodus, what's the, what is the enslaving power? Sin. I know I get on this soapbox all the time, but if you understand sin as the bad things you do, you're going to miss it. Sin is not the bad things that you do. Those are sins. That's the product 
of what sin is. Sin is a failure of worship. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is idolatry of self. It is me being God apart from God. And sin also in the scriptures is given a power. It's a dark and sinful, that's, I shouldn't use that word uh, because that's the same word. It's a, it is a sinister evil power, okay? Not, it's not just my, it's not my misbehavior. If that's what I believe, then what I'm going to believe is that Jesus died to make bad behaving people good behaving people. And if I believe in him and act right, then I'll go to heaven someday. And that is not at all the gospel. What we're reading here in Romans 6 and what, the, what, what occurred in Egypt is that there was a power that existed over the people that kept them from being who God had called them to be. Right? That power of slavery, they were enslaved and they were not able to operate in, the, in who God had called them to be. They were not able to flourish as his people because of this oppressive force of, of, of Egypt. And what Paul is doing is he's saying it's the exact same thing. You are not thriving as who you are because of this oppressive force of evil. If you read Romans 6 through 8, sin is referred to as a person. It has, it's, the, sin is personified in Romans 6 through 8 as a power, right? And we have to understand that. So what does he say? What's the first thing that occurs? That in Jesus' death, that power is over, overthrown. In those first 11 verses, what do we see? That Jesus' death destroyed that power of sin. That's why he said, we have what to sin? Died to it. Because Christ's death overthrew the powers of sin. What else does he say here? He says that, uh, let, me, let me find it, that the body of sin, verse 6, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What else is he talking about here? He says, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also, what? Live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. What's this talking about? Freedom. You see it? Think about this. When the children of Israel moved through the Red Sea, had Egypt not been crushed in their wake, they would go to bed at night, and what would they be thinking about? Yeah, they're going to catch up eventually. They would not rest easy because there had been no death to that enslaving power, right? You see it? But what did God do in this miraculous display is he, before their eyes, he crushed that power that was over them and set them free. And here's what Paul's saying. He's done the very same thing in Christ Jesus. That in Christ, that oppressive force of sin has been completely dealt with, and we can see it on the cross. That if you have died, you have been set free from sin. Death no longer has dominion over you. You see it? He's talking about that baptism into death, which means resurrection life. Okay, go to chapter, uh, sorry, you're staying in chapter 6. Let's go to, I told you this was going to be fast. Go to verse 20. Just 
maybe flip over one page, we're going to go to verse 20. So we've covered a couple of the themes. We've, we've covered that power of sin being overthrown. We've covered the baptism through the Red Sea, bringing freedom and a new life. Listen to verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit for you were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And here's one that we always quote, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what we've read that as is the wages of the bad things we do is that God will punish us eternally in hell because we behaved badly, right? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. He's saying the product, he's talking about the fruit of sin leads to death. Now how would Israel have understood this? We talked about this several weeks ago. Death for Israel was because of their idolatry, their constant idolatry, what happened? They became enslaved. They were exiled. They died as a nation. They were, they were taken away. They were scattered and they were not uh, living in the fullness of who God had called them to be. What he's saying here, what Romans 6.23 is telling us, the wages of sin is death, is not the bad things you do produce death. The wages of sin, meaning to fail to worship, is not to be alive. You were created to worship God. You were created to have Him on the throne of your life and to, to miss that, to serve sin as a taskmaster, as a slave master, is to die. And that's why he's going to turn it around and say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not talking about heaven, though that's included. You see it? You see the difference? Man, I don't... I don't know how we've gotten there, but we have. We've, we've talked about bad behaving and, and, and we've, we've, we've said that God's going to punish us with hell. And there's like, like that much truth in that, that, that. Is hell real? Absolutely. Is that something that's scriptural? Absolutely. Does sin produce it? Absolutely. But we've been talking about it in a way that's about this small and the context is so much bigger. And what is Jesus, Jesus going to do in regards to sin and death? He's going to destroy, overthrow that sin that hovers over you, that enslaves you so that you might be free to be alive because He's in you and you're living in the vocation that He's called you to. Do you see it? And you'll do that, how long? Eternally. That's eternal life. That's so much better than going to heaven someday. That eternal life is now and continuing. Eternal life is being full of the presence of God. And that will look different in coming days. The scripture tells us about a day, well, that will not be something that's by faith, that's, that's a little bit more intangible. That will be real. That will be like, we will be able to see him on his throne as he establishes the new heavens and the new earth. But it will not mean that that's where eternal life will begin. We'll just go, that's, this is refreshing. <laughs> right? Okay, y'all, okay. Y'all got it? <laughs> okay. All right, so here's now Romans 7. This is where everybody just flips out. Like, here's what, if, look, if read Romans 6 and then start reading Romans 7. It's like, no, nah, I don't understand this law stuff. So go to Romans 8, right? We're going to talk about it, all right? We need to understand it. It's really, really important, okay? And I'm going to try to summarize it 
You go back and read the details, okay? So just your homework, read Romans 7. I want you to notice in Romans 7, I want you to notice the action of sin. Remember how I said it's personified? This is really where we see Paul talk about sin as this evil power, okay? Here's a couple of examples. For sin, seizing an opportunity, deceived me. That's crazy, right? It says that twice. It sin seized an opportunity. So he's going to talk about sin and he's going to personify it. Okay, I want to show you a few of those, okay? Here's what, well, let me just read. I'm going to read 12 verses and then we'll, then we'll do some explaining. This is uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, you get all tracking? Verse 4. Come on, smile. Okay. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. You see it? In order that. That's purpose. In order that what? Why has all this happened? You may be, bear fruit to God. That's production of righteousness. Do you see it? That's worship. That's who you were created to be. Salvation is linked to purpose. Okay, In order that you may bear fruit for God. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so what we, if we just stop there, we might go, Paul, what are you saying? That the law is bad? It was a glorious thing that God would give us the law. This is God's righteousness revealed. This is how we're to live. And you're saying it's bad. And then he's going to say, what shall we say then? The law is sin? No. By no means. Now this is a really interesting statement. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Look at verse 8. But sin, not the bad things you do, remember, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds, this is a tough word, everybody say it with me, of covetousness. Okay, that's a tough one to say fast. At weddings, uh, I always dread the phrase, please pray with me, because I always mess it up. <laughs> always. Y'all say it fast. Uh-huh. That's not easy. It's like a tongue twist. Please pray So that's how it always comes out when I do it. Okay. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment producing me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead now that's strange we're going to understand it i was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and i died the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me look at here for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. All right, we're going to read one more verse. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be 
shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Some versions that say, so that sin might be gathered into one place. It's really a strange way of saying it. Let me try and summarize. So Paul is wrestling with this tension that now exists. It says, now, wait a minute, so what do we do with the law? Because remember, the law is a foundational principle of the Exodus. So he's going, what are we going to do with the law? So what did the law do? The law identified sin, but the law is good. So how did that work? Well, well, he says it. Had the law not said, don't covet, I would have not known what it was to not covet. But then he kind of uses this language about sin, that sin seized an opportunity through the law, and it deceived him. How did sin deceive him in the law? Well, what did it say? The same thing that the, that the enemy said to Adam and Eve in the garden is the exact same thing that sin says again to the, the person that observes the law. You can do this. The law is what? The righteous standard of God, isn't it? So is it good? Yes. Now what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? Let's, let's move all the way back there. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? What did the, say, what did, what did the enemy say? Yeah, don't you know that this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and if you'll eat of it, you'll be like him? You can be him? And they go, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Now we would say this, is, is the knowledge of good and evil in and of itself a bad thing? But it's not life. It's not life. And what, is, what does the law say? The law says that this is the standard of God. And what does sin do? Seizing an opportunity, it deceives him. It says, John, you see this standard? You can do that. Try really hard. Be really good. You can do that. You can be righteous. You can meet that requirement. So the law in and of itself, by identifying righteousness, is not bad. But what sin did, that, that taskmaster, that, that slave driver, says to us, you work for that. You produce that righteousness that God is speaking about. And then what happens? And then, so this, then this, this phrase that, that the law gathered sin to itself. And here's the deal. I want you to just think about sin as an evil power with, with vast armies, Okay. And what does the law do? The law becomes this righteous standard of God. And now sin is not scattered anymore. Sin is aimed at that righteous requirement of the law, saying to each one of us, come on, do that. You can do that. You can do that. And sin gathers itself in one place, organizes itself in one place against the righteous law of God. With us right in the middle speaking over us that we can be good apart from him that we can be god apart from him that we can live by our own by our own desires by our own passions and somehow fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and paul says what this produced in me was death i couldn't do it he's going to talk about it later he's going to say the good that i wanted to do i couldn't do that's not talking about after he's a believer. He's talking about this tension that was in him. What sin did in him after he saw the righteous requirement of the law. And then came Christ. Now sin, now according to the law, so the law was given to the children of Israel. Are y'all tracking? Give me like some nods if you're tracking. So the law is given to the children of Israel and sin begins to gather in one place. All of the demonic powers of sin that, that are uh, setting over us, that evil taskmaster begins to be gathered in one place in this, under this righteous requirement of the law. And then comes Christ. 
Because no man at this point, no man has ever been able to say, yeah, you're right, I can do it, and actually been successful in fulfilling the law, is it? Has that ever happened? No, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then comes Christ, and what does He do? With sin gathered in one place around the law, He fulfills the law. You see it? He had to live according to the law because that's where sin was gathered. That's where this enemy that was over you was gathered. And Jesus then perfectly fulfills the law on the cross, dies and defeats and overthrows that power that was over you and me. Sin is rendered powerless because Jesus is perfect and died in our place. Do you see it? It's the same story, right? In the Exodus, God heard the cries of His people, and God has heard our cries that sin is enslaving us. And in Exodus, He said, I'm going to come and set you free, and by the blood of the Lamb, you're going to be free. And what did God do? God conquered Egypt. Do you see it? It's the same story. Jesus didn't die this weird death because you were, you were bad behaving people. And he didn't turn around and give you his good behavior. Jesus' death on the cross was to crush the power of sin that was over you and me that kept us from being able to be his and walk in, our, in righteousness that we were intended for. And Jesus on the cross crushed that power because he fulfilled it in perfection. You see it. This is a better story. That's what's written in here. So the commandment gathered sin. Now listen, here's Romans 8. Okay, so that was Romans 7. Here's Romans 8. I'm going to read again 11 verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. Why was it weakened by the flesh? Because you couldn't do it. What the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Y'all see it? Y'all see it more as a battle? The rescuing love of God has overthrown the power that kept us from him and now in him we're free to know him. in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. We don't fulfill it by the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because He's in us. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For set the mind on the flesh is death, but the set of the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, Maybe we just summarize. (laughs) 
Jesus Jesus called a certain kind of people to himself. Who did he call? He said, come to me, all who are... You ever use these words, weary and heavy laden? No. Tired and broken. And what does he say? I'm going to give you what? I'm going to give you rest. Why? For my burden is easy. And my yoke, the weight, is light. So what in the world is he talking about? How does this apply to you? What gospel are you to now be preaching? Well, I, just want you to, I just want you to consider this for a minute. I want you to think about it. We have followed in the footsteps of all mankind and been enslaved to sin. And sin, that evil power, that evil demonic power of sin, has convinced us that we are righteous and good apart from God. Now you think about the way your culture tells that story. Just think about ways that your culture tells that story. There's a variety of different ways that we say it. There's a variety, hey, lock in, lock in. They go sing, that's great, okay? There's a variety of different ways that that we say that, that we justify it, but what has our culture said? It's, it, we, we have bought into this belief. Sin has convinced us that we, in our flesh, that we in and of ourselves are good. And we have bought into that lie and we have self-determined our lives. And we've said, yeah, okay, I am good apart from God. I can call the shots. And what have I done? I've become enslaved to thinking I'm free. That's the deceit of it. What did Paul say? He said, sin deceived me. Sin got me to believe I could do this. And thinking, whoa, thinking that we're free, we said, you know what? That is right. I can self-determine. I can be God apart from me. And I've become enslaved to my own passions and desires, as Paul would say. I live according to what I want, what I think is best. What I see around me is how I determine my life. And that's, that's how I set the course of my life, what I think and what I feel. And some of us have believed this gospel. If I'll just add Jesus in, I'll get to heaven at the end. If I'll just be moral, then I'll add Jesus at the end. That's not what happened. You're still a slave to yourself. And sin has written the most brilliant story in that you believe that you're free while you're a slave. So then what is salvation? Salvation occurs when the grace of God opens your eyes and you realize that you're a slave. Oh my gosh, I bought into this. And you see the reality of what you're in. That's when the cry comes. When did the cry from Egypt come? Because of the reality of the burden of slavery. That's when the cry came. See, it started out good. Slavery, if you read the story, it started out good. Joseph went, it started, he had a place of prominence, and it started out good. And then over years and years and years, it slowly trickled into this really, really oppressive force. And when that weight became unbearable, the children of Israel cried out. And it looks a lot the same for us. When that weight becomes unbearable, some of us would explain it like this. I chased after all sorts of different things and nothing would fulfill me. Nothing would satisfy this deep longing in my heart to be known and accepted by God. You may not articulate it like that, but nothing fills that craving and you find yourself weary and heavy laden. 
broken and absent life. You would not have even have known that had it not been the grace of God that opened your eyes to that reality. That is God coming after you. If you sit in this room today and you realize that, know that that's the pursuit of God in your life. You don't wake up one day and just realize it. That you only see it because God is coming after you. Because He loves you. And He wants you to see the reality of where you're at. Because the reality of where you're at will bring a cry to heaven. And that cry to heaven has already been answered. Humanity has cried to heaven because of the oppressive force of sin. And what God, what God is doing is He's illuminating the reality of what He's done on the cross. And He's saying, look at me, you don't have to be a slave. I have broken the power of that thing that sits over you. Come to me, says Jesus, and I will give you rest and life. That's what we offer to the world. That's what I'm telling you is available to you today is if you'll put your faith in Him, that's not like I believe God exists and I'm going to live good and maybe go to heaven when I die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I see the reality of my slavery and I need someone to set me free and I cry to heaven and then Paul says in Romans 8, thanks be to God, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That that burden and power of sin and self has already been defeated. And to come to Jesus is to receive that victory, to put my faith in Him, to cry out to Him and say, I need you to save me. God says, I already did. Just come. That action has already taken place. Just come. And he, what does He say? He, he removes that yoke, that weight, that burden of me being God apart from Him, and He fills us with His Spirit, His presence. We know Him and have life and produce fruit of the kingdom of God. And it's not just, woohoo, I get to know Jesus till I die. Now, all of a sudden, now my life begins to bear fruit of righteousness. I have purpose now. My, I'm worshiping in spirit and in truth. I'm bringing reconciliation in the places around me because I'm speaking this same message. That's what you've been called to do. That's what the gospel is. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 6 through 8. The, the exodus has happened again. And the power of sin has been crushed by the grace of God through Christ Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection has been offered to you and me. Do you know now why they say gospel is good news? Because that's really good news. Because I'm just telling you, if you were to look at my life, I'd have never found my way out. I would have never found my way out. Had it not been for the grace of God that opened my eyes to my own slavery and set me free in Him, I would have died. But He set me free. And that's the gospel. And that's what we need to be preaching to a lost and dying world. Not, hey, will you get yourself right? Will you behave better? I literally, let me just, I, I, maybe I'm just going to confess a pastoral mistake. I was in my office with somebody the other day. They were telling me just about so much hurt and brokenness and, and the reality of not knowing God at all. I mean, there's there no salvation. They never met Jesus. I'm telling them about Jesus. And they said, well, it's all fine and good. I just want to quit doing XXX, whatever it was, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. I just want to quit doing these bad things. And we, we just quit, went round and round and round and round. It's like, it's not about that. It's not about, I want to just quit doing these bad things. And I said, you know what? Keep them. <laughs> keep doing the junk. Like, keep, just 
give Jesus a chance to come into that stuff. Quit trying to just fix yourself. That is an endless treadmill. I dare you to keep doing that junk and invite Jesus into your life and see in six months if that junk's still around. Just let him come in and be, be God of your life. Let him come in and, and love you maybe for the first time. Let him come in and bring mercy and generosity and wholeness to your life and then see if that stuff sticks around. It's not about the stuff. What does Paul say? To live in sin is to bear fruit unto death. To live in the spirit is to bear fruit unto righteousness. We're telling the world to bear fruit unto righteousness absent telling them about the one that brings life to their mortal bodies, right? Absolutely telling them about the one that brings the life in here. Yo, with me? Preach the gospel, not good behavior. Okay? Okay. I think that's a wrap. Are we good? I'm starting to sweat a little bit. Y'all are getting uncomfortable. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this story. And thank you that it's not it's not, a, it's not just a story. Like, it's real. It's actual. We can experience this life that you've promised in Christ. Thank you that that power of sin that was over me is broken. Thank you that I'm not a slave anymore. Thank you that I know freedom, that we can know freedom in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that you would empower us to preach this very message. I pray that we would not sell the gospel short. It is life to a dying world. And I pray we would preach it in boldness and in authority, with love. And God, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. We thank you for what you've taught us over the last eight weeks. And I just pray that, uh, that the reality of the cross and what you have done there would sink deeply into our being. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Y'all did great. Eight weeks, y'all did great. We'll talk about like daisies and puppy dogs and <laughs> rainbow. Just, you know, fun, fluffy stuff for the next eight weeks just to balance it out. See y'all later.